0: Retirement Blues Goodbye, along Wainwright's Coast to Coast Path, a book by Richard Cowley. Chapter 6, Episode 1 A quote, relevant to Chapter 6, from William Shakespeare's play, Hamlet, Act 3, Scene 4. Assume a virtue if you have it not, for use almost can change the stamp of nature, and master even the devil or throw him out with wondrous potency. Patterdale to Bampton Fourteen miles, six hours, Richard and Peter's surprise time, six hours. On waking, I could have been the only person on the planet. It was early, barely light, and nothing moved, nor made a sound. Suddenly my floating bliss, in that idyllic space between sleep and consciousness, was rudely interrupted by the pressing call of nature. Even at that early hour, I discovered that dependence upon a communal bathroom may dangerously stifle urgent relief. When I needed the bathroom most, it was occupied. The usual backup of the chamber pot or the bedroom sink, that may or may not have been used by Wordsworth, was nowhere to be seen approaching the unstoppable moment of release i grasped the awful truth of the flawed just-in-time operation if a well-proven process is stalled for a few seconds at a crucial point disaster may ensue only fate or good fortune prevented the open bedroom window being pressed into the relief of last resort at that critical instant i heard the first sound of the day the bathroom door being opened Having secured the bathroom under emergency conditions, I elected to stay put and make ready for the day. When I returned to the bedroom, the sky was clear and soft blue above the yellow rolling hills. The warm air had come to life and carried the faint bleating of contented sheep. Eventually, the kennel dogs started barking to remind their keeper it was time to be fed. Downstairs Shirley was busy preparing breakfast, and so I took the opportunity to examine the paraphernalia that crammed the dining room. All flat surfaces were covered with crocheted doilies and glassware. Hunting trophies were everywhere. Mounted above the sideboard was a display cabinet in which a fox sat perfectly still amid a rural stage set scene. The stuffed animal fixed would-be diners with an unblinking glassy stare. The room was decorated with floral wallpaper on which hung photographs of family members in hunting attire, calf-length boots, white breeches, red frock coats, and black peak hunting caps. There were few horses to be seen, for in mountainous Cumbria, hunting to hounds was traditionally done on foot. The exploits of the region's most famous huntsman was captured in the 19th century song. Dear Ken John Peel with his coat so gay, dear Ken John Peel at the break of day, dear Ken John Peel when he's far far away with his fox and his hounds in the morning. I wonder whether Prince Charles has ever hunted fox on foot in the lake district. Some years before, when I was staying on a farm in the Peak District of Derbyshire, I was surprised to see a photograph of the prince dressed in full fox hunting regalia, posing with the farmer and his extended family. In keeping with the tradition, an envoy from the Duke of Devonshire asked if the tenant farmer would be willing to allow Prince Charles to dress at the farmhouse for the forthcoming hunt. Naturally, the farmer agreed, and in doing so was sworn to secrecy. The farmer and his wife phoned their nearest and dearest and invited them to the farm for lunch, provided they wore their Sunday best. Of course, nobody was told what it was all about. So when Prince Charles arrived, there was surprise and disbelief all round. In recent times, the Blair government passed a law banning fox hunting in the British Isles. Some see the new law as a battle in the long-running war between town and country. Others endorse the change as a further move against the wealthy landed gentry and another small step towards a more egalitarian society. Still others consider the new laws as a further limitation on people's freedom to pursue traditional pastimes many support the legislation and think it's about time civilized society gave up allowing foxes to be chased caught and ripped to pieces by packs of dogs no sooner had peter and colleen arrived for breakfast than we were joined by our fellow overnight guests they were the local team none other than the cumbrian mother and daughter during breakfast colleen explained how on their family cattle station in outback queensland they controlled foxes with the help of two hounds the dogs were let loose at night to roam free and hunt she explained throughout the night their baleful howls could be heard every time the dogs caught scent of a fox the dogs were very successful and killed dozens of foxes foxes were introduced into the southern states of australia as sport for the early settlers Two hundred years later, they've become a nationwide pest. By the time we were ready to start the day's walk, the early morning sun was hidden behind a bank of high cloud. The cool air held no hint of rain, and the light was diffuse and soft. It was a good day for walking. Be prepared, for according to the guidebook, the trek from Patterdale to Shap is long and could be difficult and tiring. Peter had planned well. He'd cut short the day's walk, and we would overnight at Bampton. This arrangement allowed us to cover the final potentially tedious miles into Shap first thing the following morning, when we'd be rested and fresh. The trail started on a stone bridge, in a wood just below Patterdale. The woodland afforded good cover for twitchers to study bird life, provided there were birds to be seen. During the summer in the Isle of I'd be left with the nagging suspicion that there were fewer birds enlivening the countryside than in days gone by. Perhaps there was some truth in the theory that global warming had changed the breeding pattern of insects, making larvae scarce and leaving newly hatched chicks to starve to death. Overnight, a mystical power must have invaded the trekkers' universal consciousness. A column of walkers trudged zombie-like towards the bridge, as though on a mindless military exercise. The gathering was quite unlike that of the previous days, when walkers started independently in their own good time. The self-appointed commander of the forward troop was the flint-eyed West Australian, with the double-pole walking canter and the flap-backed Foreign Legion-style cap. His squad showed no hesitation and streamed across the bridge, taking the far bank without suffering a single casualty. The small, highly experienced Dutch contingent advanced to consolidate the bridgehead before moving off at a cracking pace to attack the heights. New and familiar faces pored over maps and consulted guidebooks to verify their position before briskly proceeding towards the day's objective. The order had been given, the troop was eager, the final push of the Patterdale yomp was on. The moment Peter and I stopped to fix our bearings, we heard the rapid slap of a flat foot running downhill fast. Seconds later, a wildly disheveled middle-aged man careered round a tight bend in the path, heading straight for us. Although his failing windmill-like arms were most impressive, it was more by good luck than good judgment that he avoided bowling us over he was a curious creature with a long horsey face that supported a tangled mop of unkempt hair he wore a skew-whiff threadbare shirt buttoned across into the wrong buttonholes part of his shirt-tail fluttered free as colours of nonconformity his baggy pink shorts were lashed in place with a length of old rope the loose ends of which dangled below his knees In a different setting, he could easily have been mistaken for an eccentric Gunga Din, carrying an urgent plea for reinforcements to relieve a besieged northeast frontier garrison. Are we on the right trail? I asked him, while he gained control of himself. That depends where you're going, he bellowed, jogging on the spot. C2C, I replied. That way, he brayed, pointing up the hill down which he had just come. He chanted a series of landmarks and semaphore directions with such enthusiasm that it was necessary for him to crouch low to the ground to maintain his balance. "'Thank you for your help,' I said, although undecided as to why. I was more confused than before the encounter. "'Not at all!' he bellowed, sprinting off and throwing his head back to Boom Skyward as he disappeared into the green reef. "'Now for the newspapers!' Lengthy gaps opened up between the various groups during the trying climb towards Fordale Horse Heights. Isolation was a godsend, for where two or more are gathered in its name, cricket talk dominated all. After a generation of disgrace, England was in a position to beat their arch-enemy, Australia. An English victory would re-establish a modicum of cricketing pride. In the five-test series, England was ahead of Australia, making the fifth and final match the decider. Australia had to win the final test, which was then being played and approaching its climax, with the result balanced on a knife edge. A draw would leave England overall test series winner, and so give them the ashes. Test match fever had struck. England was in the grip of an epidemic of jingoism that caused normally rational people to talk to complete strangers and naturally morose types to grin manically. The tension was palpable. It even captivated those with little or no interest in cricket, people like Peter and me. Moving quickly to stay ahead of the mob was my way of avoiding the incessant analytical chatter about the match. My wish for solitude had nothing to do with being antisocial but stemmed from a wish to appreciate the wild and rugged landscape. It was madness to overlook Wainwright's haven, whilst distracted by the doings of a silly mid-off or a long leg. In the Lake District wilderness, I preferred to be in the moment, leaving cricket sledging for after-dinner entertainment. After all, the wise man when he walks, just walks.